The Medical College of Wisconsin Office of Student Health and Wellness presents Well, 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 where each episode a very special guest and I discuss what it means to be well in the world of health science education. Hi everyone, welcome to this episode of Well, Well, Well. Once again, I am very excited for the topic today. Dr. Cassie Ferguson and I discuss the difference between empathy and compassion and the importance of both of them. Dr. Cassie Ferguson is a wife, mom to three boys, medical educator, pediatric emergency medicine physician, and an avid fan of any sport. Watching the Little League World Series is one of her favorite things to do. Originally from Oakland, California, she has lived in Wisconsin long enough to know what a bubbler is and can use a snowblower like a boss. I hope you all enjoy this episode. Be well. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Ferguson, for being here. I'm really excited about this topic and We'll get started um, with a question that I use as sort of an icebreaker with all of our special guests. What's one way that you've been promoting your wellness or taking care of yourself recently? So I am excited to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Um, And I love this question because um, it gives me the opportunity to be honest as someone who teaches well-being to medical students and faculty and trainees um, in the sense of I really had been ignoring my own well-being for felt like a few months, um, kind of since school started. I have three boys in various grades in elementary school, middle school, and high school. And, you know, when school started again, their lives kind of took over mine. And that's, you know, I think that there's ups and downs in parenting. And this was just, you know, a busy time, a busy season. Um, And so... I realized that I was getting just more and more short with them, um, just feeling really kind of depleted at the end of every day. Um, and many months ago, I had actually made an appointment for um, a massage with a massage therapist close by who I really like and enjoy as a person. Um, and so, and I was getting ready to cancel it because it was gonna interfere with like three other meetings or something I had that day. And I said, you know what, I'm just going to go and um, just because it's on the calendar and I don't want to cancel on her. And it was such a good reminder that that made that like one hour of my day made me such a better person uh, That for that whole week. It kind of extended into the rest of the week. And, you know, I I'm fully aware that um, massages and bubble baths and all, you know, all those things are not don't comprise all of well-being and can't fix things, um, on the whole, but I think it was really a, just about, um, pausing and, and taking time to do something that was just focused on myself. And that was really, there was no other agenda. So from that point on, I just decided to go ahead and proactively schedule things like that, whether it's like yoga with my neighbor, um, making sure that I do all, you know, go to the exercise, <laughs> classes that I um, signed up for um, and just put them on my calendar so that um, they are kind of given the same attention as all of the meetings that are on that same calendar. That is just so crucial to make space for yourself. Mm-hmm. Agreed. I love that. Love that. <laughs> so 
our topic today, we're going to talk about empathy and compassion. And I'll just start off by saying as a therapist, in my experience and my training, it wasn't that long ago that really we were talking about empathy versus sympathy, right? And how empathy mm-hmm. was, that was the buzzword. That's what we wanted to strive for. It was important to be em- empathetic versus sympathetic. And compassion has really kind of broken down the door more recently. Self-compassion and having compassion for others and is sort of delivered to us as what we should strive for now. And I guess in your opinion, why do you think we're seeing the shift now of looking at empathy versus compassion? Hmm. So I love, I love this question and I love talking about the difference between empathy and compassion, both sort of how it shows up in our brains, but also how it impacts our well-being specifically as physicians and people who really spend most of their life caring for other people um, and caring for um, people who are suffering in particular. Um, I got, you know, I don't, I don't know that I can answer sort of the history question, like why have we sort of shifted this way? I can certainly say that, you know, what drew me to it is as I was learning about physician burnout, this this concept of compassion fatigue started sort of entering the dialogue and, and sort of what people were talking a lot about it. And I got really interested in like, is that a real thing? Like, does, cause compassion is human compassion fatigable. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And if so, like, how do we um, sort of replenish it? Um, Or, and then this kind of led me down this, path of trying to understand the difference between empathy and compassion. And is it really empathy that's fatigable? Um, And how do we like, um, really incorporate them both in a way that allows us not only to be present for the suffering of other people, but also to have like a sustainable careers in medicine, um, and in helping professions overall. And So, you know, being someone who really um, enjoys uh, learning more about neuroscience, or at least the neuroscience or neuroscientific foundations of emotions and and how we interact with other people, um, I started to learn more about what empathy looks like in our brains and what compassion looks like in our brains. And a lot of this work has been done by a neuroscientist named Tanya Singer. And, you know, it's, it's also... A, a prevalent sort of idea um, in like Buddhist psychology and trying to understand how we might cultivate compassion. Um, and so Dr. Singer did a series of studies looking at the difference between how compassion and empathy show up in our brains. And I think this really stemmed from um, some research done on looking at sort of how empathy shows up in our brain in this concept of mirror neurons, right? That that in, in animals, um, like rats, for example, um, when they see other rats in some sort of distress, there are parts of their brain that light up that are actually this similar to the parts of the brain that are lighting up in the rat that's suffering. So it's literally sort of a mirroring of what that other rat is experiencing. So, you know, empathy in that sense um, seems to be an innate capacity. And it you know, in the studies that have been done in humans, that seems to be true as well. Although, 
sort of over time, our empathy tends to wane, right? And we do tend to have more empathy for people that we're related to, possibly because it's a sort of derived from evolution and, um, and wanting to, you know, make sure that our, our own children uh, survive into adulthood. But, you know, the way that it begins to show up in physicians and people who are in the helping professions is, you know, it is an innate capacity. And we, um, we, we sort of are immediately, most of us start to feel with the people who are suffering in front of us. And I think it's, it's a natural tendency. Um, And when that happens, it's similar to, you know, the experiment that we, that we show, or that I just described in rats, those, the neurons in our brain that are, um, that can sort of signal when we're experiencing pain or light up when we're experiencing pain ourselves, light up um, in that person experiencing empathy. So if I'm watching a person suffer, I am also suffering with them. And, you know, I think this is important because it does alert us to something that's going on, right? It helps me in front of patients say, oh, this person is really hurting. But if I sat there in in that empathic feeling, all I would have sort of flooding my brain are these sort of the sensation of pain. Um, and one of the sort of metaphors that I've heard Brene Brown use um, around empathy um, and, and compassion is if you see someone who's sitting in a very deep hole, right? And you're sort of looking down at them in the hole and you get down in the hole with them just to, to be with them and experience what they're experiencing. That helps you understand what they're experiencing, but now you're both in the hole, right? right. And so compassion has this, um, this bent towards action. And so, you know, in, in the way she described it is, is compassion is getting down in the hole and bringing a ladder because then both of you can get out of that hole. And to only experience empathy when I, you know, as a physician see so much human suffering on, you know, a regular basis, I don't know that I could, you know, that I could do this forever. I certainly couldn't sustain that level of empathy um, for people on a regular basis or for an entire career. And what's so interesting about compassion then is the way that it lights up in our brain is, yes, you do engage those, those centers of pain, but the other centers that light up when we're feeling compassionate feelings towards someone are um, the same centers that light up when we're experiencing love and care. Um, and there's this, um, that can actually just drive us um, and keep us going um, in those moments of when we're in front of someone who's really suffering. It also frankly prompts us to take action on their behalf. And that is when we can do something about somebody's suffering, or at least feel like we can be present for it and feel compassion towards it. It is so much easier to, to sustain a career in a helping profession like medicine. Yes. I love, I love your point just about how this is this can be expanded globally, but it is more so important for those in the helping profession, right? So for our students, um, and I think about 
I just recently came across some literature and did a presentation on mental health stigma and how compassion fatigue can really increase stigma and um, increase self-stigma and this idea of fighting stigma through compassion resilience, right? And recognizing that compassion fatigue is sort of a normal experience and how this compassion resilience and building up this other part is so important. Mm -hmm. Um, And for for helpers specifically those in the helping professions yeah I came, I came across a a quote recently empathy is impulsive and I think you got into this a little bit with the rats but empathy is impulsive compassion is deliberate what does that mean to you and how do we actually practice compassion yeah so I I think you know what I just explained around sort of the differences between how we might engage with empathy and compassion and how maybe we're more hold innately towards empathy, but that compassion needs cultivating, maybe explains that. And that's probably, you know, it's it's definitely an oversimplification and empathy and compassion are very complex feelings or emotions. Um, and the way that they show up in our brains is more complex than, than I'm explaining it. Um, and so for some empathy may come more naturally than for others. And then for some compassion may come more naturally than for others. I do think though, that even though empathy and compassion are both probably tendencies that every human has when they're born in order for them to, you know, in order for you to continue to have those feelings um, and those sort of tendencies as you get older and and particularly as you sort of move through a career in medicine or in a helping profession, you have to cultivate them and grow them. And there's this wonderful, when I was thinking about this quote, there's this great metaphor that a Buddhist monk um, named Mateau Ricard, who is this French Buddhist monk who, um, who I think is known as sort of the quote, happiest person in the world based wow. on all of this like functional MRI that, you know, research that they've done with him. But he compares our minds to gardens in the sense of they're going to grow naturally, right? They, something will grow in that garden kind of regardless of what we do. But if they're uncultivated, if there's not a gardener there, then they can be influenced by the weather and whatever sort of seeds blow into the garden. Um, and so then, you know, again, uncultivated, some things are going to get really big. Um, some things are going to shrivel away and die. Um, and in the end, we might not necessarily be very happy with the results. And so rather than sort of letting our gardens grow untended, you know, his, um, what he's trying to say is that we have to, to really attend to them. We have to attend to our minds in some way. Um, you know, and I found it useful to do something called loving kindness meditation or compassion meditation. Um, it's called metta in, um, in Buddhism or specific types of Buddhism. And this is this concept of just repeating phrases and offering up compassion towards yourself, towards people who are close to you towards people who you may not know very well, but sort of see on a daily basis, like the cashier at the grocery store, and then towards the whole world, sort of every living being. And just repeating phrases like, may you be happy, may you be healthy, may you be safe, may you live with ease. 
And in this way, you know, and there's good studies that show that um, when this is a practice, when this becomes a practice for you, um, that you actually demonstrate more compassionate behavior towards other people. Um, and just one example of how you can actually cultivate compassion and that there's really pragmatic ways to do that. Even, you know, without going into sort of a daily meditation practice, even just paying attention um, and attending to sort of kindness in the world around you. So just being more attentive to, you know, acts of kindness that you see happening around you um, can actually cultivate your compassion too. And so I think in that, that's how I encourage students to practice compassion and sort of cultivate that um, because then it becomes a more natural um, part of their daily lives. And then it shows up more naturally when you are in taking care of patients. And even in those moments where it can feel really difficult when you're exhausted and you're otherwise depleted, that training, that brain training really kind of kicks in more easily in those moments. I frequently tell students that, that when you're, when you're practicing and, you know, in sort of like an emotionally neutral state, you know, it might seem to even some students, I think might seem silly. Um, but this idea that like you're training your brain, you're giving your brain other options, you know, so that later on when things right might be more difficult or you really need to tap into that compassion, it just becomes more natural. There's mm -hmm. something, there's a place for your brain to go that's more compassionate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that it actually does take practice. Yes. You know, I heard there was this great, um, uh, I was listening to a podcast. One of my favorite podcasts is 10% Happier. And um, Dan Harris, who hosts the podcast, was talking to a Buddhist practitioner, and she was saying that, like, you know, so empathy stands us up um, and points us in a direction, and compassion helps us kind of keep going, keep walking along that path. And, and that sort of, I think, sums up how I see the difference and, you know, the fact that um, both need to be there you know, one's not necessarily better than the other, and you need both to care for patients um, and to keep them at the center of your view, but that it really emphasizes that compassion is what will, will propel us through like really difficult time. And that, you know, like anything that has that capacity, we have to uh, really engage with it regularly and really practice. It's not enough just to know that it's important. <laughs> It's you know, taking that next step and really incorporating it into our everyday life. Yes, I love 10% happier, <laughs> needless <laughs> to say. Being in the wellness world, that's when I listen <laughs> to. <laughs> um, and I will say, too, that common humanity is one of those components of compassion. And on this podcast, we have a wellness toolbox series. And one of those episodes is a recorded common humanity uh, meditation, guided meditation, which does include some of the loving kindness mm. elements to it. So like sending those well wishes to someone you're close to, sending those well wishes to someone maybe you have a complicated relationship with, mm -hmm. um, or like you said, not much of a relationship. So check those out. Where do you see the importance of self-compassion, Dr. Ferguson? You know, what I learned about 
self-compassion. So one of the things that I think was most striking to me when I was learning more about self-compassion was that um, in some cultures and in um, Tibetan culture in particular and, and within Buddhism, that self-compassion doesn't exist as like on its own, that self-compassion and compassion for others are so inextricably linked that they're actually the same word, right? There is no sort of defining who it's for. It's just, it, it, um, it entails, it entails both compassion and self-compassion. And so the fact that we sort of in the sort of a Western culture or in maybe an American culture, we've separated them out. Um, yeah. I think it's really interesting. And I think points to the, to the difficulties we have around the term, right? I think people <laughs> yeah. hear self-compassion, they think, oh, that's, um, you know, self-indulgent and we're not gonna, you know, if, if we um, encourage self-compassion in our kids um, or in our students that they're gonna kind of get soft and not be able to sort of handle the real world. And, and I think just remembering that that is, um, that's a very American way of viewing things and that um, that it's, it doesn't bear out in the research. And where I learned most about the research was from Kristen Neff, who, you know, sort of well-known as being the guru of, of self-compassion and Chris Germer, who's a psychologist at Harvard. And Kristen Neff is at um, UT Austin. And she wrote a book called Self-Compassion. And then since then has written a workbook with Dr. Germer, um, with the same name, but really just sort of focused on cultivating self-compassion. And, you know, the, the importance of it, I think that I've learned is that, again, in the medical profession, we tend to be really self-critical. Um, and our accomplishments are, um, Sort of and what we do, what we produce tends to like rep in our minds tends to represent the kind of person or kind of physician that we are. And so when we mess up, if we don't produce or if we make a mistake, particularly one that harms a patient or, um, you know, it, it uh, harms one of our colleagues, then instead of being able to see that as something that we did, we see that as a reflection of who we are. And what I've learned from Dr. Neff's research is that self-esteem doesn't help us, right? Having good or high self-esteem actually can make those situations worse because, you know, for self-esteem to, to be, to kick in or be helpful, you have to have sort of realized whatever potential you've been told you have, right? If, right? if you're being told that you're good enough, well, then why, you know, why are you good enough? As opposed to self-compassion, which is really that, you know, that, that you have an innate goodness, you, you are deserving of compassion, but that doesn't mean that you're always going to do the right thing. It doesn't mean that you're not going to mess up. And so instead of sort of going right into shame, when we mess up, I think it's, easier when we have compassion for ourselves just as if when, when we have compassion for other people to see to see what we did clearly we're able to really sit with it because it's not about 
who we are as people. It's about what we did. And if I can say, okay, I messed up and here's how I'm going to do things differently the next time so that this doesn't happen again, or that, you know, that I, I really minimize the chances of it happening again, then I'm a better physician for sure. And I also, you know, am not sort of wallowing in shame and shame, as you well know, sort of drives kinds of behavior that we really, you know, that are really maladaptive, right? So yeah. substance abuse and suicidality and, you know, these really terrible things as opposed to guilt or, you know, just feeling badly about what we did, then that drives us to change our behavior um, because it's, again, something that we did. And so this is really where I see self-compassion coming in for medical students and, and for physicians as a whole, because of that, of our just natural tendencies to um, feel so terrible when, when we mess up. And because frankly, the stakes are so high um, in our jobs. And so, and when we do make mistakes, they do have the capacity to really, you know, to really hurt people. Um, And so self-compassion for me has really allowed me to understand that I'm going to make mistakes. And that when I do, I'm not going to completely fall apart. Right. Um, and I'm actually going to be able to be able to learn from them and do better the next time. Yeah, just respond more constructively. You know, I think it's so, like you said, it's so easy to sort of fall apart. And I remind students that I think people get confused, like you were saying earlier, self-compassion was sort of like letting yourself off the hook or like resignation, right? But it's simply this idea that I am not going to exacerbate this challenge or potentially terrible situation by self-deprecation and self-hatred and shame and some of these other concepts, right? Yeah, yeah, I... um. And I think the other thing that's great about self-compassion is that, you know, at least in the way that Dr. Neff and Dr. Germer talk about it is and write about it, is that there it is again, like we were just talking about with compassion, it's a skill that can be trained. And what's really fascinating about what we're seeing in um, our students, so you know, within the REACH curriculum, which is our well-being curriculum um, at MCW for our first and second year medical students. We talk a lot about self-compassion. We talk about mindfulness, which is a, you know, one of the main components of, of self-compassion, being able to see when it is, you know, you're feeling badly so that you can attend to that. Um, We're seeing that over time, students in that curriculum wouldn't, you know, normally we see a falling off of self-compassion over time in our students. And what we're seeing is that as the years go by, we're, we're not seeing that same falling off, that they're maintaining a, a level of self-compassion that, that, that can be useful. And the other interesting thing that we're seeing is that those students who have higher levels of self-compassion are also performing better on certain aspects of our OSCEs, which are our sort of simulated patient encounters, particularly around the skills related to communication. So the the patients that they're interacting with feel like they are communicating um, more effectively with them, which is just so interesting. It makes so much sense to me, but that, you know, what we're really trying to do in REACH is actually going to, you know, our hope is, and this is sort of pointing us in that direction, is that by cultivating some of these skills, which help us with our own well-being, 
we are also helping students become better doctors. Um, and I've been saying this forever, but you know, it's hard <laughs> yeah. for people to make that connection without sort of hard data. So this is, um, that was really exciting to see. That is amazing. And I, I continue to say on this podcast, I don't think I've done a single presentation or had an individual session with a student without mentioning self-compassion. I think it's just so <laughs> crucial. And as we're saying for, our, you know, this population specifically who are helpers and tend to be harder on themselves and high achievers, right? Like it's just so crucial. And I think it's one of those things where, what do they say? Like, it isn't easy, but it's simple or something, right? <laughs> yeah, like, simple, but not easy. Absolutely. Right, exactly. Dr. Ferguson, if students are so inspired by this conversation and they want to connect with you, how can students reach you or where can students find you? So I would love to connect with students. That's one of my, I mean, really, it's the most favorite part of my job is sitting down and talking with students one-on-one -on -one and learning about sort of their path to medical school and sort of what they sort of hope for, for their own future, whether it has to do with well-being or their career. And so I always encourage students to reach out. Um, and so our first and second year students, well, actually all of our students at this point will have my um, cell phone number, which I won't provide over the podcast. Sure. But they do <laughs> so I always tell them they are welcome to text or call and they do, uh, which I love. Um, but certainly email is always the best way um, sure. to reach me. Um, and I and I tell them this too, I prioritize student emails. I know that's not always the case in a big institution like this, um, but that is, as an educator, um, it's most important to me that they feel like they belong here and that they have someone that they can connect with. So certainly email is best. And you know, where they can find me usually is at my house. <laughs> <laughs> These days. Um, if I'm not in the emergency department, I'm at my house. Um, but I have been starting to make some, some time for in-person meetings, which, um, which is fantastic. So yeah, very um, cool. either way. Perfect. And I will put Dr. Ferguson's email in the show notes as well for listeners. And I just want to say again, Dr. Ferguson, thank you so much for being here. I love this topic. I think you made so many amazing points. I have no doubt that listeners will um, gain some value from this. I think it was really an amazing topic and I appreciate you being here. Oh, absolutely.